Well, welcome to the show, B. Thank you for having me. You are the author of the book First Bite, which is about how we learn to eat. Um, and there's lots of research behind that, which you go into detail discussing in your book. But I'd like to start with this idea you pose in the beginning of your book that we're actually not born with a natural instinct to best feed ourselves. What do you mean by that? This came upon me quite late in the research stage. I thought I was writing a different book. I thought I was really writing about <laughs> good food. And then I realized I had to explore how adults eat as well, because so many of the problems of the way that kids relate to food are still there for us as adults. But to me, I genuinely had an open mind about the extent to which our tastes are the product of genes or something innate or are they something learned? And the more I looked into the research, both neuroscience and cultural history and um, the sociology of food, the more I saw that actually we can't have an innate desire for specific foods. Sure, human beings around the world are born with somewhat an innate love of sweetness and a suspicion of bitterness. And that makes sense because milk is a very sweet substance. But all of our desires for specific flavors are something we learn from childhood onwards. Mm. And once I saw that was the case, I thought, this changes everything. Why don't we talk about this more? <laughs> because this is not the subject of dispute. You know, no one disagrees about the fact that as omnivores, we have to adapt to very different environments. Of course, we can't be born with a desire for specific foods. Mm. And yet so much of the conversation about food kind of suggests that we've got this innate um, desire for things like cupcakes and donuts and sweet foods and that somehow we have an innate resistance for broccoli and okay you could say those sweet foods go along with our palate for milk and bitterness is something it takes longer to love but there is nothing in our physiology that says you can't overcome a sort of initial suspicion of green vegetables and I was when I had this revelation I thought this is so interesting because it just changes everything you, you say that as a parent, when you're feeding a baby or a child, you're training them how food should taste? Yes. Um, so we're learning about food from the earliest moments onwards. I mean, actually, even before we're born, <laughs> we have taste buds. And there have been some amazing experiments done, especially by some people called Julie Manella and Gary Beauchamp who have studied things like they got mothers in the last trimester of pregnancy to drink a lot of carrot juice. And the babies who were then born, when they were finally weaned onto solid food several months later, preferred the flavor of carrot tasting cereal. <laughs> so it was as if they'd been imprinted with a preference for carrots. And similar experiments have been done with mothers in France eating a lot of aniseed flavored sweets, um, also garlic, we know that garlic can sort of flavor amniotic fluid. So if you kind of allow for these being our very earliest memories and that these are things which then form our preferences, if you think of this process happening multiple, multiple times in those first two or three years of life, by the time we're all conscious of having likes and dislikes, we've actually already been formed by these mm -hmm. early forms of exposure. It's not to say... Um, I'm not saying it's all exposure. I'm not saying that genes don't play a role. I'm absolutely not saying it's equally easy for everyone to learn how to eat a balanced diet. For some people, 
it's a real struggle and there's lots of reasons why eating might be more of a challenge for kids on the autistic spectrum. Mm, They struggle with eating in all kinds of ways. Um, We also know that people respond to flavor in very different ways depending on your genetic makeup. Famously, the example everyone seems to come up with is cilantro. And there is a genetic component to that. To some people, the chemicals in cilantro simply taste soapy and gross, whereas to others, I'm one of the lucky ones, (laughs) it tastes herbal, grassy, delicious. And this is repeated with lots of different flavors. There are some people that can't smell when fish has gone off, which I find slightly troubling because I just can't imagine eating a plate of that you know that horrible ammoniac smell that fish gets and some people can't detect that Mm. as it's going off and others can so we're not blank slates but nevertheless the role of exposure in forming our likes and dislikes is far more powerful than most of us allow that is there's so many points there that I want to go back to but um I think I want to start by talking about parents and picky eaters that seem to be resistant to exposure, right? Mm. Um, So what is the reason behind that kind of sometimes extreme pickiness and and how do you get around that? So hard and and absolutely I'm not, when I'm saying exposure is by and large the answer, we know that most likes are the consequence of familiarity. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the way to like something is exposure. I'm not saying we should blame parents because they haven't tried hard enough to expose a child. As a parent of three children, and I talk a lot about the mistakes I made myself in the book, it's really difficult. You're stuck in a catch-22 situation Mm -hmm. because um, one of the research papers I read was called um, I Never Tasted It, I Don't Like It, which was sort of (laughs) trying to capture that feeling that so many kids have of many of the foods that they believe they dislike, in inverted commas, the most ones they've never tasted. You know, it's the fear of the unknown. There's a classic developmental stage called neophobia. It kicks in around 1 to 18 months. It may last as long as the age of 6. And sort of in evolutionary terms, it makes sense. This is the time when children would have been leaving the home, tasting things beyond the remit of their parents for the first time. So it absolutely made sense to be suspicious of novel flavors. The problem is now... It makes so many kids suspicious of exactly those foods we would most like them to consume, especially vegetables. But also there's a lot of resistance to kind of the protein foods, fear of meat, fear of um, eggs. There's a just generalized fear mm-hmm. of anything new for a lot of kids. And as parents, it's so hard. I mean, I've been trapped in these battles myself because you can see what you want the child to do. You can see the food, you can see the child, but you just somehow can't quite figure out how it's going to get from the plate to the mouth without tears. Um, And there are these new techniques which have been pioneered over the past 10 years, both in feeding clinics and by researchers. And I have to say I was amazed by this. It sounds too simple to be true. The basic concept is, Um, you don't attempt to get a child to eat a whole portion of the food that they fear because it's a bit like if we said to you, would you like to eat a sort of whole slug or a whole plate (laughs) of grasshoppers? Of course you don't want to. But if you could reduce the food being tasted down to the size of a grain of rice, it becomes possible to put it in your mouth. It's almost as if it's not there. Mm. 
And because it feels as if it's not there, you can do it. And then the next day you do it again and you do it again. And I did this with my own youngest son, who was my pickiest eater. And I was amazed by day three or four, he'd be saying, I can't really taste this. Can I have a larger piece? And at that point, you know, okay, that food isn't such a problem anymore. And that might sound too easy, but versions of this technique have been used in feeding clinics, notably one in Pennsylvania run by a remarkable man called Keith Williams, Mm -hmm. who works with these kids often on the autistic spectrum, some of whom have such severe selective eating, they're having to be fed by tube, they might be down to eating just grilled cheese sandwiches and hot dogs. It's awful, both for the child and for the parents, to sort of be stuck in this predicament. And he's found that intensive versions of this technique can convert a child who's eating only two or three foods to a repertoire of as many as 50 or 60 mm-hmm. new flavors, which is life-changing. And it's not about just getting the child to eat the food. It's actually about changing dislike to like. I have this quote from your book, the advice of example, enthusiasm, and patient exposure, which I kind of hear you saying now. Uh, But I love it because you follow it with, and when that fails, you lie. (laughs) And you give the example of in Hungary, parents tell their children that eating carrots bestows the ability to whistle. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have some Hungarian friends and they told me this. And I just thought it was important to remember the sort of humor of the situation. I know we have a similar thing in Britain where we say, if you eat your crusts of bread, um, your hair will go curly. And I have incredibly curly hair. So I've always had, I ate my crust as a child. I was good. Um, I, I'm not really suggesting that lying is the way to go. But, sure, yeah. uh, but equally, I think lying probably works better in a funny kind of way than lots of the cajoling or advice or telling children this is a good food, this is a bad food, which so many of us do, which absolutely backfires in lots of ways um, psychologically. Um, and so to tell them some kind of sweet white lie about eat carrots and you'll be able to whistle, that to me actually seems a more productive way um, than lots of the ways, both as adults and kids, we approach the question of how can we change our diets? It's such a huge question. We know that diet-related ill health, we know that um, poor diet and lack of exercise accounted for 10% of all disease and death in the world as of 2010. It's a huge problem and somehow both as individuals and as societies and governments, we seem to sort of keep banging our heads against the wall and trying these very unproductive methods where we keep advising people what the correct thing rationally is to do. But once you accept that eating is learnt and that the process of learning it is not rational, it's emotional, it's sensory, it's lots of other things, then actually we should be approaching it rather differently. Yeah, I, I, I want to keep going with that. So can you talk a little bit more about how your eating habits as a child affect your adult habits and what that means about what the best way to change those are? Well, for lots of us, they hugely affect them. I think there's this kind of view that it doesn't matter if kids have unhealthy eating habits because they'll grow up and kind of effortlessly acquire a penchant for salad along with a deeper voice <laughs> and mature political opinions. But It doesn't necessarily work that way. Mm -hmm. Unless you provide a child with a mechanism to change, the odds are that your eating habits as a child will very much mirror those that you have as an adult. Yes, there are certain ways 
you might adapt and change. You might you meet new friends. Social conditioning and modeling is very powerful. This is a very robust phenomenon. It's been seen in lots of studies. If we see someone we admire or love, preferably eating something different, we might get over our resistance. Travel is another one. So many people say they thought they would never eat certain things and then they moved abroad and suddenly they became alive to a new world of flavor. But if those things don't happen to you, the odds are the way you eat as a child is going to reflect your habits as an adult. There was a study in Turkey involving 700 students where the students were asked, how do you eat now? And their mothers were interviewed and asked, how did they eat when they were two? And it was scary. It was almost the same. The ones that were picky eaters aged two, they were still picky eaters when they were 20. They still didn't eat vegetables. The ones who always overate aged two still always overate. And okay, there's still time. I mean, the other point I'm trying to make in the book is our tastes remain malleable. You can change at 20. You can change at 30. I even have cases in the final chapter of a Swedish intervention where they did a sort of thing called taste school for the elderly and worked with these people in their late 70s and taught them to cook new vegetables like fennel and sweet potato. And they fell in love with these things for the first time. So it's never too late, but the whole process of learning gets so much harder when you're an adult because we're less open-minded and we've been living with the habits for so much longer. You kind of think a lot about the role of family in food and eating habits, especially siblings and yes. ge- and gender. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, this was, I mean, family was one of the themes I kept coming back to. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it exemplifies the themes of the book, which is that when we just talk about nutrients in relation to food, we're missing so much of the picture of what actually motivates us to eat. And I start the brothers and sisters chapter with an anecdote about me and my sister. I was always trying to copy her or react against her. And um, as a teenager, I had huge problems with eating. I was a compulsive eater. And it was partly she was anorexic. And I felt I had to overeat to compensate. And it was more complicated than that. But that was part of what was going on. And the evidence shows from numerous studies that Sibling relationships play a far bigger role in how we eat than we usually talk about. Um, There was one study showing whether you ate breakfast in the morning might be more about how many siblings you had than anything else about your sort of innate tastes, whatever those might be. Um, And then gender. We still, in this day and age, to an extraordinary extent, feed boys and girls differently. So this is just another example of ways in which our eating habits are patterned not just by what we might know about carbs and protein and fat, but by families and by the way we're treated by our parents growing up. Um, and parents with the most loving intentions in the world. Not every family, but there is a tendency which can be mapped across cultures as diverse as Thailand and the United States, where with boys, the thing that lots of families do is they just don't pressurize them to eat vegetables because mm-hmm. there's somehow this view that meat is man food and that boys don't need to eat as much healthy food. And this can be seen in the fact that you, obesity is something affecting both sexes, but it disproportionately affects boys. So actually, maybe we should be encouraging our boys mm-hmm. to have more vegetables. And with girls, it's disastrous in the opposite way that um, 
there was one study in Minnesota following 5,000 adolescents, and it was a proper long-scale, longitudinal study. And they found that in these families, with the boys, the families backed off when it came to health advice or any pressure to lose weight as they got older. With the girls, it was the opposite. Not every family, but enough that it could be measured statistically. As the girls entered the later teen years, families were putting more pressure on them to say, you should be a certain size, eat this way, lose weight. And we know that this kind of pressure actually results in people gaining weight, not to mention the fact that it makes people unhappy and it gives you a sense of guilt about food. And with girls, the big nutritional requirement is this leap in iron needs, which as girls start their periods, they go from needing 8 milligrams of iron a day to 15 milligrams. Mm. And yet we're not saying to girls, eat hearty main courses and all of those iron-rich foods. We're somehow giving them the idea they can survive on lettuce leaves and chocolate and compliments. And I find it extraordinary the extent to which our feeding is still gendered. And then when you've been fed in this way as a child, a lot of it just gets imbibed by the culture. We kind of internalize these views. And there were various studies I came across about how women and men order differently from restaurant menus. Women often don't choose the dishes they would really like because they feel they're not appropriate in some way. You bring up disorders. And I imagine one of the challenging things in writing this book is your writing to a country who hosts the entire spectrum of disorders or, you know, multiple countries. So, I I mean, it's just hard to speak to all of the different ways that people relate to food. I, I imagine that was difficult. I did find it hard. And I, of all the chapters, I found the disorders chapter hard to write, partly just because I find it such a sad thing to think about eating, which should be such a joy and such a pleasure, and the ways in which it tortures people and makes them miserable. And as you say, the huge spectrum ranging from anorexia and bulimia on the one hand and binge eating disorder, which is sort of what I was on the fringes of. And then you have the adult picky eaters who are completely different, who are people trapped in the taste of a toddler who... (laughs) will refuse invitations to go and eat with friends because they're scared they might be offered something unfamiliar. And I did find it hard to pitch because I think there were also, as I start the book by saying, a sizable portion of the population who have no problem with food, who are the lucky ones, who don't therefore think that eating is something you need to learn. You saw from get that comment of people saying it's not really rocket science, people should just mm-hmm. eat less, move more, very simple. And for those people who have effortlessly mastered the skills of eating, it can be quite hard to explain. Actually, eating is a series of really complicated skills, but you've learned them and you're lucky and it's that's great, but not everyone has learned them. And yeah, it's. I did find it hard to, to know how to pitch it because this is precisely why I tried not to make the book one of advice because the sorts of ways in which you might need to relearn eating as someone suffering from bulimia, are completely different from the sort of challenges of a parent feeding a selective six-year-old. Even just hearing some advice that people, you know, these public service announcements about food, I'm like, oh, that would be so damaging for somebody who has the opposite problem to hear that. Yeah. Um, so This is a big problem with the health messages we put out. I think so often the wrong people hear them. I mean, you this phrase, obesity crisis, which is so horrible in itself, and 
oftentimes I think it, we know that lots of women suffer from body dysmorphia. So the people who are actually sort of underweight or normal weight are hearing these messages and thinking, oh, I should be scared of fat. I should be scared of this. And no. And the people that maybe should hear the messages don't hear the messages. I do want to talk about this study that I just love that you discuss. Very old study from Mount Sinai performed by Dr. Clara Marie Davis on children with eating problems. Can you talk us through this setup? Yeah, this is an amazing study. Um, Some listeners might know about it already. It was made very famous because it was discussed in Dr. Spock's baby care book. So Dr. Clara Davis wanted to look at what children's tastes would be like if they were totally free from all of the normal social influences that we eat with. So she'd never be allowed today. It would be seen as completely unethical, the experiment she performed, but it's still remarkable to look at what she discovered. She took babies, some of whom were orphans, some of whom had single parents, put them in an experimental orphanage, and they were only exposed to whole, pure, unprocessed foods, ranging from raw beef and sort of things like bone marrow and various other organ meats to oranges, lettuce, Um, peaches, cereals of various kinds, milk, and a nurse sat with them as they ate. But there was no pressure to pick this food or or that food. The babies could just reach for what they wanted and take as much or as little as they wanted. And what she found was that out of 15 kids, all of them managed to eat a nutritionally adequate diet. They all had 15 different patterns of taste. um, And those of them that entered the nursery having problems such as rickets or other deficiency diseases, they manage to cure themselves. But the problem with this study, it's often been misread. People look at it and say, oh, children are fine. We have a natural instinct. We have this thing, the wisdom of the body that tells us how we need to eat, that tells us which nutrients we need. But Dr. Davis herself said that was the wrong way to read it because, sure, if you're only offering children totally pure, wholesome foods, then yes, preferences might be relatively unimportant. But we know that in today's world, even in her world in the 1930s, the real choices are those between the salty, fatty, sugary, highly processed, highly marketed foods, and the pure, wholesome fruits and vegetables. And we kind of know, given that choice, that it's very difficult to push the whole real home-cooked foods. Um, And the real trick to her experiment was that she was getting kids to eat in a situation without any social influence, whereas everything we know about appetite says that it's a deeply social process. So I find her experiment fascinating, but it's also interesting how it was interpreted by pediatricians in America to to kind of reach the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. Where so many people were told, don't worry if your child only eats cereal, and milk and nothing else. It's fine, wisdom of the body, they'll get there in the end. But actually, that wasn't really what the experiment said. You're kind of interested in international eating patterns. Could you tell us about some of the countries that do a better job or a different job than we do? Yeah, I talk about several different, I mean, I talk about some countries where things are even worse, right. like Kuwait, where you almost a very, very high percentage of boys in Kuwait both are obese and have disorders and unhappy attitudes to eating. And it's partly what happens when you get a traditional um, 
culture of feeding colliding with the modern food supply. And we also see this in China where child obesity is being caused by many factors, but one of them is that grandparents are often looking after the children while the parents go out to work, and these grandparents have vivid memories of famine and believe you can't overfeed a child, and therefore they feel they're protecting their grandchildren by giving them too much food. But some cultures that have done a good job with food, and the two that I mentioned in my final chapter, Change, are Japan and Finland. And in both cases, I think you know, the United States, other Western countries should take hope we look at Japan, and I know I would have thought this myself before I did the research, it's really easy to think, well, this, Japan has a great relationship with food, all of that seafood, all of that sushi, wonderful sort of combination of pleasure and health, um, very low obesity rates, and yet food is also a national obsession. There are theme parks devoted to noodles. Um, and you can look at Japan and think, well, it's just because they're Japanese. There's something innate that enables them to eat like that. Somehow it's just part of their culture. But if you look at the history of Japanese food, they've only eaten what we think of as Japanese food for a really short period of time. And it was a series of social and economic changes. It was government intervention. It was um, changes in the sort of military diet in the 1920s that made people learn the basic techniques of stewing and stir-frying. And then actually it was also the American post-war lunch program that came in to deal with the terrible hunger that Japan was suffering after the Second World War. And new foods were introduced, white bread rolls and canned food flavored with various weird concoctions of curry powder. And that generation, it might not have been great food they were eating at the schools, but it was very different. And that generation grew up with eclectic, open-minded tastes. And then when Japan had this new post-war affluence and newspapers were printing recipe columns for the first time, Japan learned to eat in a completely different way. We should look at Japan and take hope and think, well, it's not that we're going to become Japan, but it's just diets change, people change, flavors change. Mm -hmm. And we become very fatalistic and think we have this terrible ultra-processed diet we're hooked on junk, we're hooked on french fries. But we should remember, as humans, as omnivores, we're very clever at adapting to different environments. And we haven't quite adapted to this current one we find ourselves in. There are many crazy things about our food supply. But it's possible that our palates will change. Do you support a role for regulation of food content, even government regulation? I, su I support a strong, I think there's a strong role for governments to do more. I mean, so the other culture that I mentioned is Finland, where the government has done many initiatives in public health, but one of which was 10 years ago, noticing that the child obesity rates in Finland were high compared to their neighbors in Scandinavia, and deciding to change preschool education to make exploring food through play a central part of every child's education and it seems to have had great results so far with kids coming back and saying I'm excited about beetroot and I want to try new berries and <laughs> asking the parents can you buy these things um, and it seems as if it's early days but it seems as if it's having a positive effect on child health so I'm all in favor of governments doing that and also I'm in favor and I think it's astonishing the extent to which the debate on restructuring the food environment 
it's seen as such a revolutionary thing to have something like a reduction in the size of soda bottles as Mayor Bloomberg, New York City, or the sugar tax, which is on the table in Britain, and it's just constantly being attacked as this is nanny state, we can't have this. But we somehow act as if the food environment we currently eat within is something natural when it isn't. It's completely unprecedented. We've never had such abundance, so much food being pushed at us in so many different ways. And I think some kinds of intervention to restructure the environment to make it easier for people to learn to eat would be a good plan. But it's it's only part of the solution. And given that that doesn't seem to be on the table, there's plenty that we can still do as individuals, even in this crazy food world. Is there any kind of last thing you'd like to say about um, your book or this topic in general? I think the big thing is just, it was such a revelation to me to realize that if we accept that we learn our habits from childhood onwards and that we learn how to eat, it is at least possible that we can relearn how to eat. And that to me was a very big thing. And it's it's not easy and it's not probable. And in lots of cases, the process of relearning how to eat, given how unhappy many of us are in our relationship with food, is going to take time and it's not like going on a diet and it's not going to happen in just a month. Mm-hmm. But the realization that it's possible and that what you could do instead of working on trying to force yourself to eat foods you don't like would be to change the foods you like. That, to me, would be something I hope people would take from the book. Well, thank you, B, so much for being on our show today. Thanks for talking. Once again, we've been speaking to B. Wilson, and her new book is called First Bite. Thanks again for tuning in to the Grok Science Show. For more from us, visit our website at groks.net and tune in next week. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grok's crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Enjoy the rest of your day and keep on grokking.